I'd like to start our message this morning by playing a little game. It's just called finish that phrase. So I will point to myself, say the beginning of the phrase, and then I will point to you and you say the end of the phrase, all right? Ready, set, go. It was the best of times. Awesome, my literary people. In the beginning, God created. Awesome. May the force. Ah, I got some nerds out there, love it. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Yeah. All right, since we're doing singers and songwriters, this little light of mine. Awesome. All right. This did not get a lot of traction last hour, so we're still going to go for it. She's cheer, Captain Ann. Okay. Less enthusiastic for the, the Taylor Swift fans. All right. If I ever preach this message again, I'm crossing that one out. All right. You have the right to... Awesome. Some people said party last hour. <laughs> and then if my voice sounded better, this would sound better, but good morning. Yes, Vietnam. There's something about a single line of text that can denote way more than the dictionary definitions. And in fact, most of you were able to finish almost all of those phrases. So not only did you finish the phrase, but most of you knew what would come after that. The Pledge of Allegiance, you probably no, all of that. She's cheer captain, I'm on the bleachers. I don't even know the next line of that song, but I loved it a long time ago. But these denote not just memories of the next line, but they also denote memories of maybe where you were when you first heard them. Maybe they bring to mind in 1977, you're standing in a crowded theater ready to watch Star Wars for the first time. Maybe it was the first time you listened to the Fearless album by Taylor Swift or the first concert that you went to. Maybe it was your high school English class that you tried to stay awake in. Maybe it was the first time you got arrested. Maybe it was even the Pledge of Allegiance that you said time and time again so proudly as a kindergartner in your school. Single lines are loaded with so much more meaning. And I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that as the message progresses. But for now, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. And while you're doing that, I'd like to invite Ty Irons to come. He's going to read our psalm for today. Uh, he drew the short straw. We're actually going to read all 31 verses. So buckle up. You're about to get just mesmerized by his voice. So he's got a nice southern draw. I had the privilege of meeting Ty about a year ago, and he's been a Christian a lot longer, so we're privileged to have Ty. If you guys could all stand with us as we read our scripture today, and Ty, you can go ahead and take it away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am silent, not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. 
I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers and the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. You can go ahead and be seated and join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for who you are and the identity that we find in you. And God, I thank you for the words of David, the words of the other psalmists. We thank you for their honesty and their words, their vulnerability. They were casting their cares on you and that you invite that. God, please bless us today as we look back we look to our present and we look to the future as to what you would have us learn, who you'd have us be, and what you'd have us do as a church. Jesus, we love you so much, and it's in your name that we say these things. Amen. All right, I want to encourage you, stay in Psalm 22. So stay, keep that open. If you don't have it open already, please do so. Singers and songwriters. We are in the middle of a series called, series called Singers and Songwriters. Wow, say that five times fast. And Stan gave a sermon, a song for anxiety. That was week number one. So our overall series, we are looking at the, the words of David, the words of the other psalmists as they express their thoughts, their feelings, their deep felt emotions to God. And what we want to encourage everyone is there are psalms that we can look at when we don't have the words to say. That David has written those for us, that God invites us to dialogue with him and to push back at him and to give over our words and our thoughts and, and everything to him. He invites that. Week number two, Stan talked about a song for repentance. We looked at Psalm 51 and David, after he had sex with someone who was not his spouse and then had someone murdered in order to cover it up, went first to God to proclaim his repentance. He gave us that song. And then last week, Daniel gave us a sermon about a song for praise. That there are moments where we just well up with praise for God. We don't know what to say. Psalm 8 demonstrates how we can do that. And this week, we want to look at a psalm for hope. 
Psalm 22. Now, before we jump more heavily into it, I, I just want to express, I'm a little uncomfortable with the Psalms, if I'm being honest with you. As I was processing how to preach this, I have never preached through a Psalm before, because whenever I get to pick the text, I always pick something that's a lot more concrete, that's a lot less flowery and emotionally driven. My guess is there are probably a lot of you similar to me in the audience right now, in our church, who they, they really process with their brain and less with their heart. What I want to challenge you and encourage you with today, open your mind a little bit to that and open your heart to what God is saying through David here. So there's some pitfalls in interpreting this type of literature. So as we interpret scripture, there are overarching principles and then we can get... Uh, down into the, the dirty details. We're going to do that a little bit, so stay with me. Because we also, in addition to telling you what we believe about what God is saying, we also want to equip you to learn how to do this yourself. So context is king. That is one of the main principles of scripture interpretation. Context is king. We have to look at the context that David was writing. We have to look at the context that this is quoted in. There's a lot more to that, but know that context is king. If context is king, then genre, literary genre is crown prince. And Stan talked about it the first week. Is this, are Psalms prescriptive or descriptive, right? Are they something that we should do, prescriptive, or is it something that did happen, descriptive? And as we look at this particular Psalm today, Psalm 22, we have to ask ourselves, is this Psalm prophecy? And if so, what's the significance of that? So prophecy, they can get kind of a weird name in scripture. Prophecy is used two main times. Prophecy is used to tell what is going on right now as a forth telling and prophecy is also used to predict the future foretelling so we've got prophecy that is forth telling telling what's going on prophecy that is foretelling telling what's going to happen in the future more often than not in scripture when we are reading prophecy we are reading about something that is forth telling it is something that is going on in the moment right here but today we get to look at a scripture that is both Forthtelling, and it is foretelling. It is predicting something that will happen in the future. And many of you know what that is. I want to introduce you to a, briefly to a concept called multiple fulfillment. It's the idea that it can be fulfilled in the immediate context. So in this case, David, and it can also be fulfilled in the future with the events surrounding Jesus's life. So multiple fulfillment. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we jump into this. Singers and songwriters. I'm going to pull up my Michael Scott here. A song for hope, a song of David, a song of lament. Now, doesn't this seem like a weird way to start a song of hope, right, to start it, the first two-thirds of it being a song of lament? Now, this isn't in the scripture, but I'd just like you to imagine it for a second. Imagine this scene. David, the writer of this psalm, he has won notoriety for himself as being a great warrior. This is the dude you guys all know. He struck down Goliath with a stone. He had killed countless Philistines. This was a guy that they sang songs about that David has slain his tens of thousands because he was such a famous warrior. David has also done some kind of nutty things that we would all look at and be like, dude, that's, that's kind of weird. He was so excited one time when he was worshiping God that he danced so big and, and crazily that his wife actually called him out and said, I'm embarrassed about this. This is the same David who, in order to save his life, he acted like he was crazy and he foamed at the mouth in order to save his own life to convince people that he was just a little bit nutty. 
This is the same guy who twice spared the life of somebody who was trying to kill him. So this is a David who we're not sure what he's always thinking. And so I just want you to picture this. David calls in a few of his subjects and he's like, check it guys. I just wrote this mad new riff on my harp and I wanna play you a few bars right now. And it's a song that I wrote about hope in God. You guys wanna hear it? And they're like, yeah, that's great. So then he starts with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. So what do you guys think so far? And these guys are looking at each other just a little bit nervously, knowing that David's killed a lot of people, including people who tried to help him. And they look at David and each other and like, this is so good, boss, so good. So why of all the Psalms that we could have picked about hope, did we choose Psalm 22? The answer is this, you've heard the phrase, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And I would contend that we cannot know true hope without also knowing true despair. We cannot know true hope without knowing true despair. And so the first half of this psalm is a psalm of lament. I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I usually do when I preach through text, but I, I feel like this text just lends itself for us to walk through the text because it can be just a little bit tricky to interpret at times. And so if you could open your Bible, if you haven't, to Psalm 22, we're just going to walk through it, and I'm going to throw in some color commentary for a lot of it. Verses 1 and 2, a song for lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. So David feels abandoned by God in a really dark time. That's very obvious. And when trying to figure out the context for this particular psalm, a lot of the psalms it says, hey, this is, this is what happened in David's life right before he wrote this psalm. A lot of scholars think that this psalm was actually written by an old man David as he looked back at his time and all of the different things that God had delivered him from and all the feelings that he had felt up until the time that he became an old man. So he is feeling the depth of forsakenness by God. Let's keep reading. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So here we see that David is recognizing God, his God, as king. And we also see him recognize that his people in the past, I want to reiterate, his people in the past, the Israelite nation in the past had been delivered by God. And their trust in the past was very well placed. David looks back before he looks to the present. This next section is, in my opinion, the darkest section of this psalm, and I'll tell you why after we read it. Verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You want to know why I think this is so dark? Because David has acknowledged that in the past, the people have cried out to God for help. And God has delivered him, them. He's delivered the Israelites. But right now, David is also calling out to God. And God is silent. God is silent. 
And people are noticing. And they're making fun of him for it. Have you ever felt this way before? Maybe you've seen God's faithfulness with people around you in the past, and you're wondering, why do you feel forsaken by God? Maybe there are people that you care about, and you're like, man, that's great for them, but like, God, where are you for me? Or perhaps it's a little bit darker. Maybe there are people that you don't really like. God, why are you there for them, but you seem to be forsaking me? David gets even a little bit darker. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. And to make this even darker, David is recognizing in the past God's care for him. And yet nothing being done in the present. God took care of him as a baby, but now God is nowhere to be found. And this is what he says in the present. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. David makes a plea to God. He recognizes nobody else out there. As the king, he had a lot of people at his disposal, but for whatever reason, the situation he finds himself in, the situation he looks back on, he had no one to turn to but God. No one to turn to but God, and God was seemingly not there. David goes on to say this, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They cast, or they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Some of you are probably starting to recognize some of the verses that would be quoted later in our New Testament. But right here, in the context of David, he's describing his isolation and his physical suffering at the hands of his enemies. And then he comes back to the line he said at the beginning, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Another plea in a trusted God. And he goes on to say this. Deliver me from the sword, verse 20. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And again, he's continuing to talk about the predicament that he's in. And threats to his physical safety no doubt having an emotional and psychological and all kinds of other damage to him. Depths of despair. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And this is where the psalm takes such a drastic shift that a lot of Bible scholars, they think that the first psalm was a separate psalm and the second psalm uh, of hope, they were completely separate and someone just shoved them together. I don't believe that. I believe that David, in order to understand the hope that he had for the future, had to understand the pain and the anguish and the suffering and the forsakenness of his past. A song of hope. I will declare your name to my people, verse 22. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And here we get some clues as to maybe what the context for this psalm is. 
So the ones who fear the Lord, the people who respect him, who follow after his ways, this is the gathered assembly where they're gathering as the Israelite nation to praise the Lord. Very similar to a church gathering where we come to praise the Lord. And I think we can get a hint for really the purpose of our worship gatherings. Praise the Lord. That is the purpose of our worship gatherings. It's not to walk away feeling really awesome about ourselves. It's not to learn something new. It's not to feel all the feels or think all the thoughts. Those are great things that I hope happen at Venture. But the purpose of our worship service, praise the Lord. Praise him, honor him, revere him. And whenever we make something in our church about something other than that, we must repent. Praise the Lord. Why does he deserve our praise, though? And David goes on to say this, verse 24, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So obviously David's the psalm writer. David's saying, God, you're looking after me. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He didn't look at David's suffering and say, eh, I don't care. He's been there. He has not hidden his face from David. And as David writes this psalm to be sung in the assembly by other people, we get the sense that God is a God that wants us to come to him personally, that all of the people can utter these words. He's not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one, the afflicted ones being you and me today. God listens to our cries for help. Even when he feels like he has forsaken us, he is still there and he is still listening. And David highlights that for us. Verse 25, from you come the theme of praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. From you comes the theme of praise. From you comes the theme of praise. Who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in the future. These are the things that we praise God for. God is the theme of David's psalm. God is the theme of our gatherings. God is the theme of our life. And now we see a shift. David has looked to the past at what God has done for other people and for him in the past. He's looked at his present situation and said, man, this is not overall super awesome right now, the situation I find myself. And right here we see a permanent shift in the psalm to the future. This is what God will do. And this is something that David longs for as the king of Israel when his relationship with God is made complete in the new creation. This is what he says. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And this is good news. Not right now, but at some point in the future. This is what David's saying. Not right now, but at some point in the future, God will be a God of all of the nations. You and I are direct beneficiaries of that. And this is good news because God is not a God like the other gods around Israel. He's not a God of vengeance. God is not a God that desires for people to, to serve him completely all the time. Well, that's not a way to say that. God's not a God who uh, just desires service with nothing in return. God loves us. This is a God of love. He's one who cares for the poor. He cares for people that are not his people. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. 
Everyone in the entire world would eventually acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And the climax of this particular psalm, this song, this ballad, this story being told by David through his song. Verse 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. Everyone will eventually recognize the kingship of God. And everyone will eventually recognize that they are part of the kingdom that he has created. And this is good news. What a psalm, what a song, what a ballad. That even in the midst of his darkest times, David trusts God. Even when David didn't feel it, when he felt forsaken, he trusts God. And he knows that God is still there. There's something else special about this particular psalm. And it's one that you may have picked up in the first line for those of you Bible scholars out there. You see, the first line of this psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the seven last phrases that Jesus says as he is dying on the cross. So this is not just a psalm of David. This is the song of a savior king. Singers and songwriters, a song for hope, a song of David, and the song of a savior king. Did you have a favorite book growing up? Perhaps you can't remember that book. Did you have a favorite song that you liked your parents to sing to you? Perhaps you are the parent or the grandparent or some of you great-grandparents, congratulations. Do your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids have a book that they keep going to over and over again? Ad nauseum. If I can just go on a, a short tangent, we gotta stop buying the books that are like morally ambiguous. I've got a book I've read six times to my kids. I still don't know what they're trying to say. I just threw it away. So don't buy Pokey Little Puppy for those of you that are in the, the market for a book right now. Luckily, the book that I keep going back to that my kids just love me to read, it's a book called Grumpy Monkey. And if you haven't read Grumpy Monkey, I'm about to spoil it for you. So you might need to close your ears if you don't want any spoilers on Grumpy Monkey. So Grumpy Monkey is a book about a character named Jim Panzee. Yeah, clever, right? Jim Panzee. And Jim spends the entire day trying to convince his friend and then really everyone around him that he is not grumpy. Turns out he is. And things keep going from bad to worse to worse to worse. And Jim finally blows up and he screams, I'm not grumpy. And then he immediately regrets his decision. He apologizes to his friends. His friends are like, it's okay to be grumpy sometimes. And then a preferred future that his friends are still around him and he's processing his emotions. I don't know what five-year-old can do that well, but we're trying to train ours. <laughs> My kids love that book. I think part of the reason is they love screaming, I'm not grumpy. But I think there's something a little deeper than that too. I think it has all of the elements of a classic story that kids and adults really like to hear. There's deep emotions and conflict. There's rising action. I'm not grumpy, I'm not grumpy. There's a climax, things blow up, they come to a head, he screams, I'm not grumpy. 
and then there's resolution. Things get resolved, and they look ahead to a preferred future. We all love these stories from a young age, and a lot of them are put to music. Mary had a little lamb, the itsy bitsy spider, five little ducks. Most of you guys can probably sing all those verbatim. They're songs that tell a story. And I would contend that Psalm 22 is a song that tells a story. I wanna challenge you to do something a little different than what we're used to doing in here. I'd like you to close your eyes. And I promise you, I'm not gonna squirt you with a squirt gun. Whenever people tell me to close my eyes, I always assume I'm gonna get squirted for some reason. So close your eyes and I wanna take you back 2,000 years. 2,000 years, I want you to picture in your head a little kid Jesus. He's growing up, he's going to Shabbat gatherings on Saturdays and the leaders would read from their scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. Now Jesus is an exceptionally gifted student and he would likely have memorized all of the available scriptures to him at a young age. And now enter Psalm 22, keep your eyes closed. To a people brutally oppressed by the Romans, to a people who had not heard from God in over 400 years, to a people who held sacred the words of their warrior king and poet, David, and to a people who themselves felt forsaken by God. Psalm 22 was no doubt a favorite of the people who Jesus grew up around. And so I imagine little Jesus, he's probably eight, nine, 10, doesn't have a beard yet, but I imagine little Jesus sitting down with his mom and his adopted dad one day. He spent the better part of the day with a lot of kids hanging out near the synagogue. He'd actually gotten beat up. He was misunderstood. The adults in charge were just not around. They didn't care to be. Jesus took another beating. So Jesus snuggles up next to Mary and Joseph, his folks, and then James. James is still awake. He's one of the older ones, but all the other siblings are in bed. And he asks his folks, he says, can you guys sing to me my favorite psalm? Mary and Joseph kind of look at each other like, which one's his favorite? He's such a teacher's pet, right? So Joseph says, you want to hear the one about God making David's enemies a footstool under his feet? Jesus says, ah, nah, dad, I, I like that one. I'll use that at some point, but not tonight. So Mary looks at Jesus and she says, oh, what about the one about God being David's shepherd? Jesus looks at her and says, man, I, I love me a good shepherd. I love shepherds, but not tonight. I don't want to hear that one. So Mary and Joseph kind of look at each other like, we thought that was the favorite one. And they're like, oh, there is that one. We forgot the name of it. It's super long. Uh, it goes to the tune of dough in the morning. Jesus said, that's it. That's it. And then from memory, they all start uttering the words of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it moves to the very end of the psalm. He has done it. And again, the Bible is silent on this, but something I want you to just imagine in your mind that all of these memories, as Jesus is hanging here on the cross, taking on the weight of the sin of all mankind, and all these memories from his, his childhood, his young adulthood, his ministry, they come flooding back to him. And in his darkest moment, he cries the words spoken by his teachers, by his parents, by David, and by so many others before and since. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
so much is happening here, and it's difficult to know really what to say and what not to say. It's the culmination of the entirety of human existence up until this point. Lots of questions. Did God actually forsake Jesus, or was Jesus just teaching the crowd? Or was he just singing a song so that he could comfort himself when he was in immense physical pain? What does being forsaken look like? Was Jesus completely separated from God? If so, how? Did he go to hell? Did he go to Hades? Did he go to someplace else? Was the forsakenness a physical pain, or was it an actual separation from God? Was it emotional, physical, psychological? Did God kill himself? Did God the Father commit some kind of divine child abuse by killing God the Son? Question, question, question. These are all great questions to bring to the text. And honestly, the Bible doesn't answer most of those questions. People much smarter than I have been debating these for years and years and years. So I don't know how Jesus was separated from God. I don't. But we can all know why Jesus felt forsaken by God. You see, single lines can mean so much more than the words that they convey. Single lines of text mean so much more than the dictionary definition of the words. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Everybody that was standing at the foot of the cross, the people who were jeering at him, the people who were crying because they were sad that their teacher and friend was dying, Jesus' mother, all of these people, they would have understood that when Jesus said the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that Jesus was calling onto himself the entirety of the psalm. That not only was he feeling forsaken in the moment, but Jesus was looking from his present to a future in which he could say, he has done it. He has done it. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he looks back to David he looks to his present horrible circumstance. He looks to a future where God is king of everyone and everyone is acknowledging that. And he sings the words of a savior king, a song for hope.